Last time we spoke about the landings at Arroway, the continuation of the Bougainville campaign, and some new action in the CBI theater. Despite a rubber boat disaster, the operation against Arroway went off successfully, seeing another Allied landing taking the Japanese by complete surprise. Now the Japanese would be forced yet again to launch a counterattack, hoping to dislodge the Allied forces from the new beachhead. Over on Bougainville, the Marines performed some assaults against hills like Helsipopin Ridge, to expand the perimeter just enough so the army boys would have an easier time taking over. Over in the CBI theater, the Onion Man, Wingate, was given the task of expanding his chindits, and the Americans wanted their very own chindit force as well. Stilwell decided the time was ripe to unleash a minor offensive in Burma, and soon saw what looked like a weakened Japanese perimeter was in fact quite, quite strong. This episode is The Drive Upon Sio. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II, and so much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I've just released episode 1 in what was an exclusive Patreon series about General Kanji Ishiwara. Speaking of Patreon, if you want, you can check out mine at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel where I have more exclusive podcasts. This month's podcast is going to be a rather silly one about Sir Winston Churchill getting drunk and fighting a shark. You heard that right. So come check it out to find out more. Last time we saw General Cunningham's men successfully land at Arroway, where they hoped to build a new PT boat base. Troop A was supposed to land an hour before the main landing to cut the coastal road near Umtagalu village and Troop B would land at Pillolo Island to cover the main passage to the harbor. Well, Troop A was a disaster. Their 15 rubber boats were met by 25mm dual-purpose guns that sank 12 of them, killing 12 men and wounding another 70. Troop B was more successful, landing at Pillolo Island and capturing the radio station before engaging in a minor firefight. For the main landing at House Fireman Beach, there was very little resistance. Sporadic machine gun fire was silenced by rockets as the men landed. The Japanese tossed some airstrikes to hit further landings and convoys, but Allied Cap managed to limit the damage. A few days after the landing, the Komori detachment reached the village of Ditmop, alongside the Puli River, where they paused to reorganize and rally the incoming survivors fleeing the landing area. The very difficult terrain and river crossings prevented Komori and his men from assembling into offensive positions until December the 25th. Meanwhile, back on the 18th, the 1st Battalion, 141st Regiment, began an advance from the Itni region, aboard seven barges. Unfortunately for them, two LCVPs bearing 19 men on patrol had been sent by Cunningham to Cape Peho. 
The two forces ran right into each other, and after an exchange of gunfire, the U.S. soldiers abandoned their LCVPs and retreated along the Arwe coast. Another patrol, traveling by LCVP, also fired upon the Japanese barges near Umtagalu that very same day. But they were able to return to Cape Mercus. On Christmas night, a hundred men of the Komori Detachment assaulted the main line of defense across the neck of the peninsula. The inexperienced American cavalrymen of the 112th managed to repel them, albeit with some difficulty. The attack prompted General Cunningham to believe Komori was in charge of the lead element of a much larger force, most likely en route from Gizmata. He therefore requested reinforcements and General Kruger responded by dispatching a company of the 150th Infantry by PT boat. Meanwhile, the lack of results from the attack prompted Komori to defer further attacks until the arrival of Major Tobuse's battalion. On the 27th, Allied intelligence indicated the Japanese had retaken Musalia and Umtagalu, prompting Cunningham to withdraw all outposts and patrols within the main line of defense. The 2nd Battalion, 158th Regiment, were sent to reinforce the beachhead, while Komori and Tobuse finally made contact with another. The first order of business was to contain the growing American perimeter. Both Japanese commanders believed the Americans sought to repair the unserviceable Lupin Aerodrome. 700 yards from the U.S. line, the Japanese established a series of alternate positions taking advantage of the terrain and concealment, making it very difficult to spot them. Cunningham would remark, This is not an organized position in the accepted sense of the word. It consists apparently of shallow trenches and deep foxholes. The ground is covered with a thick green mat about 12 to 18 inches in depth, which makes observation absolutely impossible. Officers and men report that they have not seen a single Japanese and that they are unable to locate machine guns firing on them from a distance of 10 to 20 yards. From these positions, the Japanese harassed the Americans using motor and automatic weapons fire. Whenever the Americans tried to pinpoint where the fire was coming from, the Japanese would simply switch positions to another. Within these parameters, only limited skirmishing was carried out for the next few days. On January the 4th, Komori reported repulsing a strong American offensive, and two days later he received his first citation from Emperor Hirohito for his heroic achievement. Meanwhile, a much-frustrated Cunningham began sending reports to Kruger. He could not spot the enemy and was convinced continued attacks would simply result in further casualties. By January the 9th, he reported 75 deaths, 57 wounded, and 14 missing. He requested Kruger send him some tanks, and on the 9th, he received the 1st Marine Division's 1st Tank Battalion from Finchhafen. The 1st Tank Battalion had been left behind at Finchhafen because of a transportation shortage and limited range for tank operations in the inhospitable terrain of the Cape Gloucester region. Eventually, Rupertus would also release the rest of the tank company, then in reserve at Cape Gloucester, to help out. The Marine tanks and Army infantry quickly worked out details on how they would do combined operations. Can you imagine the IGA and IGN trying to uh, pull such maneuvers? Would have been quite humorous. The morning of January the 16th kicked off with a squadron of B-24s followed by another of B-25s bombing the Japanese positions. This was followed up by artillery and motors, and then two tank platoons began their assault against a 500-yard front. Behind the tanks were infantry of the 158th, 
and despite the swampy terrain and thick vegetation, the tank infantry stormed forward. The Japanese resisted ferociously, grounding two tanks that would have to be destroyed lest the Japanese seize them later on. The Americans destroyed the enemy's positions, crushing numerous automatic weapons and a 75mm mountain gun. But the Americans had no orders to hold any positions, so they destroyed and pulled back to their perimeter for the night. The following morning, the Americans resumed the attacks with flamethrowers, eliminating small pockets of resistance still remaining. Komori, still obsessed with defending the Lupin Aerodrome, to the very last man, ordered a withdrawal, but not before radioing to his brigade HQ, Fight till the glorious end to defend the airfield. This would earn him a second Imperial Citation on February the 7th. During these actions, the Americans suffered 20 deaths, 40 wounded, and 2 tanks. For Komori's men, they had 116 deaths and 117 wounded. For the next three weeks, the fighting would deteriorate into a matter of patrol skirmishes, with Komori triumphantly reporting back to HQ how the airfield was still in Japanese hands. The reality, however, was the Japanese were heavily outnumbered and they lost control of the air and sea. How many men Komori commanded remains difficult to figure out as no documents were captured after the operation. It appears unlikely there were more than a thousand under his command. Early in the operation, the Japanese were supplied by airdrop, often during daylight, in view of the Americans. Yet as the Americans tightened their grip over the sea and air even more, Komori became increasingly dependent on the trickle of supplies coming over the torturous trail from Iboki. Carrying and distributing these supplies imposed still more of a drain on his manpower, and he would have to withdraw his headquarters to Dipmop leaving direct defense of the airfield to Major Tubase. Yet, that is going to be all for Arawa today, because we need to travel back over to New Guinea. Wario had fallen, and now the Australians were advancing upon Fortification Point as General Katagedi's 20th Division were retreating towards the northern coast. The 20th Division would arrive to Zagahame and Oraku on the 22nd and 25th respectfully. With these movements occurring, the Australians now felt the time was ripe to launch an offensive against Sio. On December the 20th, General Wooten ordered the 20th Brigade to advance through the 4th Brigade's position, and then begin a rapid pursuit towards Sio. The next day, Brigadier Windare and his men advanced towards Wendokai, while Wooten was reorganizing his forces to allow the coastal advance to continue. Meanwhile, the 24th Brigade took over the Gusaka Wario Saddleburg area, the 4th Brigade took over the Fortification Point Masawang River area. The 26th Brigade advanced down the coast and would be ferried to the mouth of the Masawang River to support Windir's advance. The Australians enjoyed the advantage of aerial support in the form of Bostons, Mitchells, Marauders, Aerocobras, and Thunderbolts, who would continuously hamper the Japanese with bombs and strafing runs. Alongside this, Allied PT boats harassed the Japanese barge fleet between the 9th and 13th, they would sink 26 barges along the coast, mostly south of Sio. Despite the air and sea support, the overland advances were particularly rough on the men. From Fortification Point to the Kapugara Gorge, the coastal track ran along a flat kunai ledge some hundred yards wide. Between the sea on each side was sharp coral terraces. They had little cover along such a line of advance. There was also few natives inhabiting the area. The men of the 20th Brigade were not in a great condition when they began their pursuit. They were stricken with malaria, and Colonel Simpson anticipated the enemy might hit their left flank, 
so he dispatched two companies to travel parallel with the main coastal advance, and those guys, they had some really rough terrain to travel. There was very little water to be had along the coast, and the long Kunai fields increased the heat exponentially. The men occupied Hubika on the 22nd without any opposition. The Allied engineers would find the gorge beyond Hubika would prevent any progress by the tanks, so the troops would have to proceed without their support. By nightfall, the 2 and 13th Battalion would advance another 3,000 yards facing no opposition. They got around 1,500 yards past Wendokai, when suddenly motor and artillery rained down upon them. This was Captain Yoshikawa's 1st Battalion, 80th Regiment, who unleashed a bombardment for two hours upon the advancing Australians. Though it appeared like there was a major fight in their hands, it was only rearguard actions. Yoshikawa and his men were retreating towards Ago that very night. Christmas would see Wendeo receive the gift of further artillery reinforcements for his advance. The 62nd Battery and 2 and 12th Field Regiment came over on Boxing Day, and at the same time Colonel Miyaki would decide to abandon Ago and continue the retreat towards Kanomi. On the night of the 26th, a company from the boat battalion of the 592nd EBSR, alongside an Australian radar detachment, landed on Long Island. This was part of Operation Senatogan. The mission was to set up a radar station and observation post on Long Island to help with the landing at Sadar, and to thwart Japanese barge movements in general. The Japanese had never placed a garrison on Long Island, but it was used as a staging point for barges moving between Rabal and Wewak. At 9 a.m. on the 27th, 18 Mitchells and 12 Bostons bombed and strafed the Walingai and Konomi areas before Windair resumed its advance. The 2 and 13th advanced through Ago and occupied Wilangai unopposed by the end of the day. The next day saw Australian patrols running into Japanese positions around Konomi. At 11.15 a.m., a patrol of the 2 and 13th was fording a creek when they were fired upon. The patrol saw at least 14 Japanese retreating north around Blutcher Point as they fired Vicker guns and motors upon them. During the afternoon, the Allies began a heavy artillery bombardment. The speed at which the Australians were advancing was providing results, as the Japanese were forced to withdraw even further towards Kalasa. Yet the Australians were stretching their logistical lines, forcing Wooten to halt the forward units for over two days. The two-day delay allowed General Katagiri to get his men past Kalasa and to reach Sio without any hindrance. On New Year's Eve, the 2 and 15th resumed their advance, finding only slight resistance around Nanda. At 5.30 p.m., the 2 and 15th were fired upon by a few bands of Japanese, and they responded with artillery fire, forcing them away. To avoid unnecessary casualties, the Australians halted at the very last creek before Nanda, and then they resumed the march on New Year's Day. The 2 and 15th then passed through Quam Quam and captured Salum Island during the afternoon of the 2nd. Salum lies around halfway between Fortification Point and Sio, and it afforded the Australians a decent area to build a large supply depot. Yet the advance to Sio was not the only thing going on on New Guinea. Since the Battle of John's Knoll and Trevor's Ridge, General Nakai's detachment were forced to withdraw further back into the hills. The Nakai detachment were now clinging to Shaggy Ridge and the Kankiri Saddle, and an area between the Faria River, Medang, and Bogazim. Over on Kankiri, Nakai dispatched Captain Ohada Masahiko's 3rd Company of the 1st Battalion, 26th Field Artillery Regiment. General Nakai told Ohada that the enemy is extremely sensitive to the use of artillery firearms, 
so that the artillerymen are expected to cooperate closely with the infantrymen until the very end. To this, Ohada recalled, I realized what was expected from our commander, and he also said, please take good care of your life. It took more than 20 years to train one artillery officer, but a gun is only material. We can replace the gun, but not the artillerymen. There is a very reasonable explanation for Nakai's order. The IGA artillery field manual indicated their field guns were more valuable than their artillerymen. In Article 10, it states, The gun is the life of the artillery. Therefore, the artillerymen must live and die with the gun, and share the honor and shame together with the guns. One must continue to fight until the very end. Thus, Nikai at this time was prohibiting suicide, and it seems he was simply trying to save the lives of his artillerymen, lest they die for the sake of their guns. The main Japanese position was at Shaggy Ridge, a four-mile-long spur dotted by several rocky outcrops where the Japanese troops established numerous strongpoints. From the Pimple, a large rocky peak rising halfway along the crest of Shaggy Ridge, the Japanese found it extremely sturdy to defend. The future often saw a mist envelop it, adding to its defensive capabilities. As the Japanese clung to their heights, the Australians were busy developing their new main base at Dumpu. Airstrips, roads, bridges, culverts, and numerous buildings were being worked on. And with the recent acquisition of the Ramu Valley, they were also building a forward airbase at Gusap. The only major offensive against Shaggy Ridge came in late October. In accordance with Vasey's advice, Brigadier Doherty prepared an attack on the southernmost peak of Shaggy Ridge on the 20th. For three days from the 17th, Doherty's patrols crept as near as they could, and early on the 20th, Captain White, the FOO of the 54th Battery, directed fire of his guns upon the Japanese position. At midday, forward units reported that they were within five yards of a four-strand barbed wire fence. The Japanese position on the kunai-covered pinnacle was just 30 yards away. Between the enemy position and his men, there was a steep gully about 100 feet deep with pretty precipitous slopes on both flanks. The Japanese had cut fire lanes through the kunai, and they were well dug in, heavily bunkered from the cliff face. Through the clever use of artillery fire, the Australians tricked the Japanese into retiring temporarily to gain some shelter. The artillerymen varied the rate of fire so that it was never the same while platoons would storm specific ridges, gaining ground without any casualties. To defend his western flank, General Vesey dispatched the 2 and 7th to Kusawai 1, and the 2 and 6th to Kusawai 2. Yet the role of the 7th Division for the time being was really limited to patrol activities. On the 23rd of October, a section of the 2 and 2nd Commando Squadron, led by Lieutenant Doig, crossed the Ramu and moved up the Uragina track the very next day seeking a way east of the Mataloi Ogaruna area. Lieutenant Doig entered the new territory on the 25th, and by 9 a.m., trees across the track near Orgaruna suggested the Japanese might be in possession. Between the 25th and the 31st of October, Captain Hayden's company of the 2 and 25th Battalion tried to reach a Japanese track between Paipa and Kankiri. After moving up the Avapi River, and then through some rugged, unmapped country for four days, the patrol leader was forced to return as he realized that it would be impossible for him to reach his objective, without further rations. On the 29th, the 2 and 7th Commando Squadron, an engineer, 
Captain Gossip of the 2 and 6 Field Company, and two others left to patrol a road from the Ramu Valley across the Finestri Ranges, towards a Japanese road. This patrol returned on November the 1st, reporting that there was no possibility of making a road from the Kusawai areas towards the Japanese roadhead. Lieutenant Maxwell of the 2 and 6 Commando Squadron performed a three-day reconnaissance towards Yakopi, walking right into an enemy defensive position on the first day out. He and his men would see five Japanese looking right at him from about 20 yards away. They retired before they could fire at him, though. Sergeant Beryl of the Papuan Battalion led his section, three men from the 21st Brigade, and 50 native carriers on a 13-days patrol into some ranges to patrol enemy movement in the Kankari area. He returned on November the 11th without having found a worthwhile observation post near Kankiri. On the 20th of October, McCaddy sent a patrol from the 2 and 2nd Squadron to Joseph Estal to find out whether the Japanese were even there, and whether an airstrip could be constructed over there. Accompanied by Sergeant Major England of Agal and Lieutenant Green's small patrol of five troopers, 32 native carriers, and five police boys, they left for Sapu, where they would remain until November the 3rd. The route chosen by Green and England did not follow the known native tracks, as the Australians wished to avoid contact with Japanese patrols. The journey would take nine days. Over at Antambul, where the Japanese were known to be in some strength, well, this was bypassed. Although there were some tracks from Japanese horsemen at Sambanga, and reports from natives that the Japanese did occasionally patrol the area between Atambul and Joseph Estal and Medang, but they had no encounters. On November the 13th, Green arrived to Joseph Estal, which was not occupied, but had been recently visited by a small Japanese patrol. The Australian patrol returned to base on November the 26th. On December the 2nd, a patrol of 42 men from the 2 and 33rd Battalion, led by Lieutenant Scotts, set out, urged on by Ether's hope that it would be able to blaze a track into the heart of the Japanese defenses at Kankiri from the west to get a prisoner. Moving up the Many River Valley and across the 5,500 feature, Scott established a base at a steep ridge. The next day, he moved down a spur to some native huts where the dense jungle was replaced by kunai, and then he crossed into another spur, where they established an observation post. Meanwhile, a patrol from the 2 and 2nd Pioneer Battalion was attempting to observe the Kankiri Saddle area from the east. On the 7th, Lieutenant White led out eight pioneers, two Anga Warren officers, and 20 natives from Bob's Post following the Japanese mule track north to Tom's Post. The next day, the patrol moved along a well-surveyed track, and about 1,500 yards beyond Tom's Post, they saw a strong enemy position ahead on a high feature astride the track. On the 9th and the morning of the 10th, White tried to work around to the north of the enemy position to carry out his original task, but dwindling rations, heavy rain, and rugged country forced his return to the track. Accompanied by two men, White then advanced along the track, but after 20 minutes, he came under heavy fire. The three men ran back down the hill, which they had been climbing, but White was hit by machine gun fire and he fell. All of these patrol actions helped prevent the Japanese from penetrating south, and they figured out generally where the Japanese were in numbers. On November the 9th, Vasey relieved the 21st Brigade at the front with the 25th Brigade. Alongside this, the 2 and 6th Commando Squadron and a Papuan company were sent to reinforce the front, while the 2 and 7th Commando Squadron was withdrawn. And with that, after nearly 10 months since Lieutenant Rook and his platoon of the 2 and 7th Battalion had arrived at the airstrip at Bina, the Bina force ceased to exist. They had 12 deaths, 16 wounded, and 5 men missing, 
but they claimed to have killed over 230 Japanese. They helped build the Garoka airfield, over 78 miles of motor transport road between Bina and Garoka, Sigoya, Asaloka, and Kinyantu, and produced maps of completely unknown areas. And in his final report, McAdie would write, The force fulfilled its task. Every enemy patrol which crossed the Ramu River was driven back with casualties, and very determined enemy attacks were repulsed with heavy casualties. In addition, the enemy lost many men in ambushes on tracks north of the Ramu River. There is no doubt that the enemy regarded this force as a menace to his flank, and little doubt that the size of the force was grossly overestimated. Now, the 2 and 2nd Commando Squadron were to assume the responsibility for the defense of the Binagaroka area. November would see the start of an intense hide-and-seek artillery duel. The Australian artillery was attempting to neutralize the Japanese 75mm guns. Captain Oata had placed two gun emplacements on the outskirts of Shaggy Ridge in a position that protected the ridgeline in the front. The first emplacement was not entirely concealed, and thus quickly became a target. Fortunately for the Japanese, the guns survived as the Australian gunfire only hit their shields. Captain Oata thought he could conceal their muzzle flashes by firing lower. The second gun emplacement was completely covered by a shelter, yet Oata would remark, However, the footsteps of soldiers who were coming in from behind the position were spotted by the search plane. We were indeed astonished by their way of finding the gun position. By the end of November, General Nakai was preparing to hit Kesaway and counterattack towards Dampu. In early December, patrols from the 2 and 16th were probing Shaggy Ridge. Vesey intended to perform a diversion to attract the Japanese attention away from the other pending operations in New Guinea and New Britain. An idea was floated around to have Brigadier Doherty raid the Kankiri Saddle. But that's it for New Guinea for today, as we have some major events to cover that are unfolding in the CBI Theater. Over in Tokyo, on November the 5th and the 6th, the Greater East Asia Conference was being held. Intendees included Hideki Tojo for Japan, Jiang Qinghui for Manchu Kuo, Wang Jinghui for the Republic of China based in Nanjing, Ba Ma for Burma, Sapastanzo Bose for the Free India Movement, Jose P. Larel for the Philippines, and Wen Wathayakon for Thailand. Notable exclusions would be that of Korea and Taiwan whom the Japanese had annexed and did not want to give any political autonomy to. There was also Vietnam and Cambodia, who were not invited so as to not offend the Vichy French government, who were still claiming French Indochina was under their rule. There was also Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, but Japan figured they would simply be annexing these regions for their natural resources, which were becoming literally the lifeblood of their empire. Of the attendees, Subhas Tanjabos was only present as an observer, as India was obviously still under British control. And the representative of Thailand was under strict orders from Plaque Fibonson Kram to emphasize on every possible occasion that Thailand was not under Japanese domination, but in fact a allied equal partner. You might be asking, why did Plaque Fibonson Kram not attend such a grand event himself? Well, that's actually because he feared if he were to leave Bangkok, he would be ousted. 
Hideki Tojo made a grand speech, greeting each of the participants and praising the spiritual essence of Asia in opposition to the materialistic civilization of the West. To give you a taste of how this meeting was like, here are some of the dialogue amongst the participants. Hideki Tojo stated this in a speech. It is an incontrovertible fact that the nations of the greater East Asia are bound in every respect by ties of an inseparable relationship. Bama of Burma stated, My Asian blood has always called out to other Asians. This is not the time to think with our minds. This is the time to think with our blood. And this thinking has brought me from Burma to Japan. Jose Laurel of the Philippines, in his speech, claimed, The time has come for the Filipinos to disregard Anglo-Saxon civilization and its enervating influence, and to recapture their charm and the original virtues of the Oriental people. Sebastian Chobos of India declared, If our allies were to go down, there will be no hope for India to be free for at least 100 years. Overall, the meeting was characterized by praise of solidarity and condemnation of Western imperialism. But in terms of how Asia was going to come together and economic developments and such, there really was no meat to any of it. Hideki Tojo simply kept reiterating how great Pan-Asianism was against the evils of the White Devils. Yet for all of the talk of Asian unity, the Japanese government's actions were anything but that. The Japanese viewed themselves as racially superior to that of the other Asian nations. They saw themselves as the great Yamato race, and they were destined to rule over the other Asian people, similar to a father and son relationship. I actually want to take a moment here just to say, you know, going off the script a bit. I happen to have covered this topic very thoroughly in a four-part series I did over on my Patreon about General Ishiwara Kanji. You see, Hideki Tojo's main military and political rival was Ishiwara Kanji. And all of this Greater East Asia stuff was actually stolen materials from Ishiwara. Ishiwara, for those unfamiliar, is someone I believed had an unprecedented impact on global history. Ishiwara pretty much single-handedly began World War II, I would argue. He was a very bizarre figure who came to the realization just after World War I that the entire world would be engulfed in what he called the Final War. To prepare Japan against this apocalypse, he believed Japan had to seize Manchuria for her resources. This would empower the empire so it could face an adversary that he thought was going to be the United States. He also believed it was absolutely necessary to ally with China, and that everything needed to be done to create a harmony between the two peoples. Ironically, after Ishiwara caused the invasion of Manchuria, it all, in his perspective, got out of hand, and he was tossed aside by people, specifically like Tojo. He spent the entire war openly criticizing Tojo and the policies of the Japanese government while trying to create this Pan-Asian League. And Tojo simply copied what he was doing and gave it a different name. And he made sure to eliminate the elements about allying with China. And of course, for stopping the war. So yes, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere is actually a stolen idea from Ishiwara's Pan-Asian League. 
Ishiwara is a fascinating figure, and to be honest, I was so happy with the four-part series, I told my patrons I was thinking I should release it on my YouTube channel and onto uh, my private audio podcast. By this point, as I'm reading this script, I believe the first episode should be available to the public. Please go check it out, and if you like it, uh, please check out my Patreon account, because I'm doing quite a lot of interesting podcasts over there. And it's a lot different than this podcast, I'll say that much. Also, over on my Patreon, it's not limited to the Pacific War. I'll cover just about any history that I have some knowledge about. I base pretty much everything on polls I do with the patrons on what they want to hear more about. And I also do more contemporary things like, um, oh, I did an entire investigation of the opioid crisis because, for those of you who don't know, my background is actually in neuroscience. Uh, oddly enough, that's my first degree. So that was a pretty interesting episode I did. I was happy with the results. It's a story that's becoming more known to the public, but a lot of people didn't know about the, uh, the crisis that had loomed in the 1990s and how it were related to the Qing Dynasty's problem with opium. That's uh, the comparison I made. And uh, here, I'll just throw this out right now. I've been thinking about a more controversial episode, and it'll probably go on my Patreon account, but um, to just tease it, I was thinking of doing a comparison of the current state of United States politics and the corruption of the Qing Dynasty in the 19th century. Yeah, that one will be uh, fun. But uh, back to the story. Back at the conference, in the words of the Indian historian Panjab Misha, the Japanese had revealed how deep the roots of anti-Westernism went and how quickly Asians could seize the power from their European tormentors. Tokyo had hoped that a major demonstration of Pan-Asianism would lead China to broker a peace with Japan and thus join them in the war against the West. A major theme of the conference was that Chiang Kai-shek was not a proper Asian and that no Asian would ally themselves willingly to the white devils. As you can imagine, the speeches made by Tojo emphasized how evil Britain and the United States were. Yet, at the same time, they praised Nazi Germany. Here is a part of Tojo's speech. The needs of upholding international justice and the guaranteeing of world peace is habitually stressed by American Britain. They mean thereby no more and no less than the preservation of a world order of their own, based upon division and conflict in Europe, and upon the perpetuation of their colonial exploitation of Asia. They sought to realize their inordinate ambition in Asia through political aggression and economic exploitation. They brought on conflict among the various peoples. They tried to destroy their racial integrity under the fair name of education and culture. Thus, they have to this day threatened constantly the existence of the nations and people of Asia, disturbed their stability, and suppressed their natural and proper development. It is because of their notion to regard East Asia as a colony that they harp upon the principles of the open door and equal opportunity simply as a convenient means of pursuing their sinister designs of aggression. While constantly keeping their own territories close to us, the peoples of Asia, thus denying us the equality of opportunities and impending our trade, they sought solely their own prosperity. The Anglo-American ambition of world hegemony is indeed a scourge of mankind and the root of the world's evils. As regards the situation in Europe, we are very glad that our ally, Germany, has still further solidified her 
national unity, and with conviction in modern times. As regards the situation in Europe, we are very glad that our ally Germany has still further solidified her national unity and, with conviction, ensure victory, is advancing to crush the United States and Britain and to construct a new Europe. The war of Greater East Asia is truly a war to destroy evil and to make justice manifest. Ours is the righteous cause. Justice knows no enemy, and we are fully convinced greater of our ultimate victory. Meanwhile, the Allies held the Sexton Conference in Cairo between November the 22nd to the 26th. This conference established China's status as one of the four world powers, kind of a cheeky jab at Japan, and a means to sway Chiang Kai-shek from surrendering. At the conference, plans were made for an offensive in Burma, codenamed Operation Champion, with sub-operations Tarzan and Buccaneer. Lord Mountbatten presented three plans of action. First, Operation Tarzan called for four Indian divisions of the British 14th Army Group's 15th Army to concentrate their forces in Chittagong and to cross the Mangda Bithadong Line in mid-January. The next year, they would capture the Burmese coast in order to defend Chittagong and occupy Sitwe and the Burmese coast. Then three divisions of the 4th Army would assemble at Impal and move east with the objective of destroying Japanese lines of communication and advancing to Arak and various parts of Sidon and northern Burma. In March, the Chindit's long-range infiltration force would be parachuted into Burma behind the Japanese lines while the Chinese expeditionary force in India would cross the Hokang Valley and advance eastwards into Mitkinina. The Chindit special forces would then support the Chinese forces and occupy Bamo in April, while the Yunnan army would begin operations on March the 15th and advance to Lashio in April to join the British forces at Lashio and Bamo. In the Bay of Bengal, a massive amphibious offensive would also be launched, with 3,000 British and American long-range infiltration troops participating. Operation Musket would see the capture of Cape Sumatra, and Operation Buccaneer was to be an amphibious operation to seize the Andaman Islands, in order to cut off the Japanese supply lines. Chiang Kai-shek expressed support for Tarzan, but once again insisted it needed to be coupled with a massive naval operation in the Bay of Bengal. Though the British were reluctant to do this, United States pressure eventually convinced them to land on the Andaman Islands. The Chiefs of Staff then agreed to drive Japan out of Burma and to reopen land links with China, with Joseph Stilwell conducting the ground attack in the north and Mountbatten commanding the amphibious landings in the south. The American delegation told Chiang Kai-shek that for the following six months, only 8,900 tons of supplies could be flown to China via the hump. Even though Chiang Kai-shek continuously appealed for 10,000 tons. In the end, President Roosevelt promised to increase the airlift supply to China to 12,000 tons. He also promised B-29 Superfortress bombers would bomb Japan from Chinese bases very soon. By the way, that actually reminds me, if you're interested in the beginnings of the bombing campaigns against the Japanese home islands, please check out a podcast I did with Dave from the Cold War channel over my YouTube channel. I think it would be surprising to a lot of you that the B-29s were operating first in India and China against the home islands before they would ever arrive to some Pacific islands to perform the bombing campaigns. And there was a tremendous learning curve in how to go about bombing Japan. Many of the resolutions and promises would not actually be implemented. 
Politically, many arrangements were made for the post-war international situation as well. Roosevelt and Churchill supported the territorial claims of the Republic of China, such as returning Taiwan and Manchuria to the Republic of China and deciding to allow Korea to become independent in due course. The Cairo Declaration, however, made no specific mention of the future of the Ryukyu Islands. China, of course, wanted them. But the United States believed the Ryukyu Islands could be left to Japan after the war, if they were completely demilitarized. It was also agreed between China and the United States that Lushun would be used as a public military port for the Americans after the war, and that Dalian would become a free port. As somebody who has thoroughly covered the First Sino-Japanese War, the Triple Intervention, the Russo-Japanese War, uh, World War II in general. It is incredible how important Lushun, or as those in English would know it, Port Arthur, was to world history. Chiang Kai-shek on the possibility of the abolition of the Japanese imperial system, along with its emperor Hirohito, did not favor this. Chiang Kai-shek mentioned that the cause of the war was because of Japanese warlords, and that the issue of the emperor should be left to the Japanese people to decide upon. This is because Chiang Kai-shek had received some education in Japan and he understood the concept of the Kokutai, and he knew what would happen if they actually killed the emperor. The Americans did not want France to return to Indochina and offered Chiang Kai-shek control of French Indochina, but he publicly declined. As Chiang Kai-shek strongly advocated for the independence of Korea, he also wanted to assist in the independence of Vietnam. FDR firmly supported Chiang Kai-shek's efforts to end imperialism in East Asia. To end the conference off on December the 1st, the Allies issued the Cairo Declaration, demanding Japan's unconditional surrender and the return of all occupied lands. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. I just released the first episode of a four-part series on General Kanji Ishiwara. It used to be exclusive to my Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, where I have more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is going to be some wacky tales about Sir Winston Churchill, one involving him fighting a shark, believe it or not. Check it out. It means a lot to me. And so the drive to Seo was raging on. The Japanese were not being given a moment to breathe as they continued their withdrawal further north. Back over in Japan, Hideki Tojo was trying to win over the Chinese, but the Allies were making sure to keep Chiang Kai-shek firmly in the fold, in a four-dimensional game of global chess.